no, no, no. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Reconcilable Differences. <laughs> well, the good news is the bang bang machine is left for the day. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. good. Um, I went out there today to try and kind of suss out. I, I'm really bad at talking to people. I like to think that I'm a good communicator because I, I think I come off as, as a pretty friendly person, but I just can't talk to people. And I ended up saying really odd things to them. And I think the phrase, so you think that's mostly it for the noisy part? And the guy did kind of a shrug. Because, you know. Don't you think these guys have your number? They had your number like a week ago. What number is there to get? I just don't want any trouble. I don't want trouble. So these people are constantly doing, it's their job. They're construction workers, right? They're constantly doing construction, probably often in front of people's homes. And there's always somebody who's going to come out and talk to them and see what's going on and be their friend when all they want in the entire world is for these for the bang bang machine to leave, right? Do you think they like as soon as they see you coming out, even before you open your mouth, they know who you are. They know mm-hmm. you're the person who wishes the bang bang machine would be gone, but also wants to make friendly talk. Okay. That's and you know that's what I mean? Pos- yeah, like, I do, I do. Because I I think I very much read as that particular guy. But like you are that guy. I mean, who wouldn't be? Who wants the bang bang machine? Nobody wants it. But it's also fascinating work. So I went out to admire it today, and I yeah. asked them some questions about their work, which they seemed like they were nice enough about, but they had stuff to do. I asked them some of their nomenclature. and uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'm that kind of guy. I would come out and ask them some questions, you know? Hey, hey, is that the kind of thing you could buy at a store? Huh, those hats are cool. <laughs> did, you, did, you, did you deliberately pick one with a wider brim than the other fellas? So did, did they say to you, can I come up to your podcast studio and ask you questions about podcasting while you podcast? Yeah, I don't go where you work and slap the jokes out of your mouth. Everybody, thank you so much for visiting with us uh, once again, and uh, um, we're gonna we're gonna do our little uh, our little dog and pony show for you here. Um, But this is also, if you enjoy this program for whatever reason, you can choose to support it with your financial dollars. That's how I choose to look at it. Uh, And this is one of those uh, once a month. Once a month, uh, uh, this night is different from other nights because we have some bonus content, John. what are we going to talk about in our uh, very special member after show? Uh, understanding uh, we, this is a serving suggestion, we're not committed to this. Yeah, that's the problem. We, we have, yeah. always have a plan, right? Oh, we have a plan about what we're going to talk about. The show. <laughs> yeah. Break. Anyway, uh, the plan is this time in the after show to talk about uh, one or two possible things. One of them is the Apple event that just happened today, March 8th. Of course, by the time you hear this episode, this will be old news. So we're going to talk about the Apple event and then you'll hear it like two weeks after you've forgotten the event existed. But that's just part of the show. And the other thing is jury duty, which hopefully by the time you hear this, (laughs) I will have already gone to and left because I have jury duty. What, Thursday, Wednesday? I have jury duty in two days. Oh, really? Uh, as we record oh this. Gosh. And I'm hoping it's just one day, one trial, blah, blah, blah. So those are the possible topics for the after show. So if you want to hear the after show or you just want to hear a version of this show with no ads in it or you want to get a bunch of cool extra stuff from Relay, relay.fm slash rd slash join. And you can sign up uh, and get all that good stuff. Yes. Um, we're going to start out with a... Um Copyright uh, John Syracuse 2011. We're going to talk about some uh, follow-up. <laughs> I believe the first item is yours, John. They, they still, they're, they're still poking at you. They're still just, they're out to get you, yeah. these TV people. What's going on this week? Yep. Uh, my ongoing saga of trying to get a new TV. Uh, you know, in the past, I've been complaining about how modern TVs, particularly the very fancy ones that I, uh, I'm interested in buying, don't have stands that fit on my very narrow 
place where I put my TV due to the, the shape of my house. I can't have a very wide thing to fry TV to go on. And all of the fancy, uh, fanciest of the fancy TVs uh, have had these stands that are very, very wide, just like the television. And instead of back in the olden days when they had like a central stand. Um, so for years, like I thought I would end up buying is whatever the fanciest LG OLED is because LG had some of the best OLEDs. And every year LG would come out with a fancy OLED and every year the feet would be incredibly widely spaced uh, to the point where I think last year's model, like the, the feet are at the far edges of the TV. It was just totally incompatible with my <laughs> narrow TV stand, right? It seems extremely um, so limiting in where it could go. Not just yeah, you. Yeah, I, I mean, it really seems like they're not giving you much in the way of options apart from over the fireplace or somewhere inconvenient. Yeah, and, it, and it's weird because for years and years, flat panel televisions had a stand that was in the middle, right? It was it was wider. It's not like it was on a pogo stick, you know, but it wasn't the full width of the television because why would it be? These TVs are so wide. You don't need a, a stand that's that wide. But then at some point in the past five years, they all got together and said, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to do mm-hmm. other weird stuff that don't fit on narrow pieces of furniture. So anyway, uh, this year, Instead of looking at the high-end LG, I'm looking at the Sony because it comes with a, the QD OLED screen. Um, and that one also has a stand that doesn't work for me. And so I'm going to have to buy a third-party stand and, you know, whatever, right? Um, so, but I felt, saw a video recently. We'll put a link in the show notes, a timestamp <laughs> link to this video, showing what this year's uh, modern top-of-the-line LG OLED looks like. They went back to the central stand. Because now they know I'm not buying that one. Now they know I'm only interested in the QDO. Let's like, oh, don't worry. John's going to buy a Sony one. We can go back to have. And so it's just it's it's just unbelievable. Like they they waited. They waited until I wasn't going to buy an LG TV. It's like one of those online bets, like when we have jetpacks or whatever and give the money to charity. It's like people are betting on what it will take to actually drive you completely over the edge. Yeah, I just put a I sent you a message. Take a look at this. Look at that. Doesn't that look unnormal? Unno- yeah. I looked at the video. It's a normal TV stand. It's like, like an the way old he described normal. it as having duck feet. I thought that was funny. Yeah. Look at yeah. it. Look at it though. Look, it's normal. It's narrow. It's normal. It would fit on my furniture, but that's not the TV I want this year. So thanks a lot. Do, do you think um, I'll just I'll, I'll just make this an I statement. When I put together um whatever that was a year or two ago, whenever I got my my LG. And I really struggled with it. The base is so heavy and it really is a two-person job or, or maybe me with lifting straps. I don't know. But I had a hell of a time with it and the base is very, very heavy. Do you imagine, like, why do you think, why do you think they decide these things the way they decide them? Is it is it one of those things like the way you try and make toys look good on the stand, even though it's not very fun to take them out of the package? Or, I mean, is there a chance, is it for security? I wonder if it's something where, a consumer like me looks at a TV that big and that skinny, and and I think one could understandably say, "Gosh, I hope this thing really stays up," you know, like in a stiff breeze. What What do you think? What you, based on what you know, explain the trends to me. Well, what's going on with TV stands? Well, what's happening? So Sony's deal is they are they are following their own ill advised fashion muse. They're they've been chasing for many years now. The idea that the television should look like just a complete disembodied screen that is touching the surface that it's on. I think this is a terrible idea for so many reasons. Like one of them you just mentioned, hey, it's so thin. Like, don't you want it to at least look like it's secure and it's not going to tip over or anything? Right. And also, why would you want it touching the surface of the thing you put it on? Because then you've got to scooch it all the way up to the edge 
Or people can't see the TV if they're like laying on the ground. They look up at the TV. You're going to miss the bottom two inches of the TV because the furniture is going to be blocking it. Like TV, these flat panel televisions elevated up slightly above the surface they're on is a thing for a reason. Setting aside sound bars and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But anyway, that's what Sony's been trying to do. And part of that is Sony's whole thing is like, we're going to make the stand disappear so you won't see it at all. But of course, you can't have the television both have no border on it and also sitting on the flat surface and then also see no stand because it would tip over, right? Mm -hmm. And so the other thing Sony has done for many years is have their top-end models lean back slightly, which is terrible because I'm not up there. It, it's like <laughs> I, my eyes are over yes, my eyes are on the yes, couch. Yes. Why, is, why is the All TV right. tilting back? And it's tilting back to, to give it more stability because the stand just comes out of the back, right? There's no stand in front of it. And if it didn't do that, like a little kid could pull on it and it would tip over, right? right so right. Sony... Sony's goal is oh, we want it to look like a disembodied screen. And that's a stupid goal, and they are pursuing it, and that's what that explains their thing. LG, on the other hand, I think they're following, they're also following fashion, but their fashion is not as ridiculous. For one thing, LG has recently come out with several stands that do elevate the televisions enough for a soundbar, just not on their best TVs. But on mm. some of them, at least they acknowledge that existence. And there's also one that has enough room, like their gaming one for it's like a 42 inch one and a 48 inch that has room for you to slide a keyboard underneath it and stuff. So at least they have a little bit of a brain there. But why did their feet suddenly shoot out to the edges? It's just a fashion thing. Oh, we think that looks cooler. And we assume everybody has a piece of furniture that's wide enough for a 65-inch 16 by 9 television. Right. This is not a terrific example, but a phrase that um, Apple was throwing around when they first put the notch on the iPhone was embrace the notch, something like that. And I say that's a terrible example here because what I'm trying to get at is a better example of something where an important not a fashion decision, but a practical constraint becomes part of what makes something valuable. And I imagine you could think about things with automobiles. You could think about things with, you know, probably, I don't know, firearms, but things where, like, you would try to keep this thing safe and, and usable and all those different things. And, like, the, what you're describing here is this fashion decision. It seems really short-sighted. Like, I... We'll talk about this later, but I had reason to to look at a page with options for <laughs> mounting a monitor. And um, I'm very intrigued by the idea of saying, like, um, on the Apple site, it says, hey, which one of these do you want? Do you want the fancy one or the super fancy one? And then which one of these three stand options do you want? And by the way, they phrased it. It was very confusing to me. It looked like it was $2,000 extra for a stand, which almost gave me a heart attack. But um, But I guess what I'm saying is that this is... Who knows where somebody's going to put this? This could be in like this could be in your Pablo Escobar safe room. This could be at a again. I'm always coming back to that idea. I I, I come back often to this idea of like the Airbnb or the rental place because there's so many things in technology that, in my opinion, fall down at the level of how will this function in an Airbnb? If you can't remotely restart the Wi-Fi, if you have to do troubleshooting with hands-on, if you have to like in all those different kinds of things. And in this case, like, if you're going to get a premium TV, why not give me some different options for how to mount it beyond the fireplace or not? And in the case of, like, I've got an, I mean, it's not super fancy by today's standards, but it's a nice TV. And as I've said to you, if I put any sound bar up there, it's blocking, at least it's unesthetic to me, not aesthetic. Um, I don't know. It just seems strange to me that in a premium product like this, you wouldn't like when you go out and buy your new Accord, you get trim options. Like, oughtn't there be a way like wouldn't it be smart, especially if you're Sony 
and you try to make things that are you know beautiful as well as functional. Well, well, uh, you think it's just purely fashion? I mean, most brands do give multiple configurations of their feet these days, but it's like wide or even wider. And even the Sony has like lean back with the stand going backwards or completely vertical with the stand going forwards. But the, in the Sony's case, it's still flat against the table and super wide. And in the LG case, they're still, you know, widely set or the past. Like they try to give configurability, but they don't understand. Like, what are you solving with this configurability? Oh, great. So I can either have it elevated a centimeter or an inch and a half. And I can have the feet almost at the edge <laughs> right. or completely at the edge. Like you're not giving a lot of variety with these options. And so I don't, yeah. And I, I don't quite understand what's wrong with the central one. And maybe, maybe it's because of wobble. Like maybe it was expensive to make a central stand that didn't wobble. So it's much cheaper. That used to be mine does it with TVs. weight. The, mine, the, mine does it with a very heavy base that I want. I can't be 80 pounds, but it was something ridiculously heavy. And I, I think it's trying to do with weight. What others are trying to do with sort of uh, square inches. Right. Yeah. I mean, you need the stability. You don't want it to tip over. You don't want a kid to be able to pull it sure. over that easily. Right. So, yeah. And, but, but, but then, like, I think the wide set feet, like the cheapest televisions used to have wide set feet just because it's easy to make it so it doesn't wobble. Because if you just put two big long legs on front and back on the edges, it's not going to wobble from side to side. Right. And whereas if you have a central stand, you have to make it out of strong metal and have it sort of, you know, slot into the television itself in a very firm way so it doesn't shake. But anyway, it's, it's disappointing. But, uh, I'll, I'm going to, just wait until I, if I get this TV and I get this third party stand, I don't know how many third party stands I'm going to have to go through and how upsetting it's going to be for me to have to like <laughs> put it on a stand, put it on the thing, remove it because it shakes, try another stand, put it up. Like I, I'm not looking forward to that part of the experience. No, it seems like the company that brought us the the Vio should be um, a little more flexible about how we might want to use it and put it together. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com diffs. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website. You can engage with your audience and you can sell anything, your products, services, even the content that you create. Squarespace has got you covered. You can sell your products. How about this? Maybe get physical things. You get digital things. Doesn't matter. They don't care. Squarespace, they have the tools that you need to start selling online. And you can stand out in any inbox with Squarespace email campaigns. Why not encourage your visitors to sign up as email subscribers and start them on the journey to becoming loyal customers? Just start with an email template and customize it by applying your brand ingredients like site colors and logo Plus, you get built-in analytics that measure the impact of every send. Hey, you know what? Blogging, it's still a thing. Squarespace has powerful blogging tools. Share stories, photos, videos, and updates, and you'll be able to categorize, share, and schedule your posts to make your content work for you. You know, Squarespace, as you may know, gets my official okie-dokie. I'm a big fan, been using them forever. Uh, I use them every week for the Roderick on the Line podcast. That's where that podcast has always lived. Show notes, audio, uh, you know, uh, as they say, you know, uh, a nose to tail, you know, it, it's all in Squarespace. I trust them. So right now, uh, do me a favor, go head over to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That's going to get you a free trial. Free trial. Eh, no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use our very special offer code diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That's going to save you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Once more, squarespace.com slash diffs. 
When you decide to sign up, use that code DIFFS for 10% off your first purchase. And, you know, it, it shows your support for John Craig Syracusa, which, um, which he likes a lot more than he lets on, I'm pretty sure. I can't prove it. He's, he's, uh, he's very difficult to deal with. But uh, Squarespace, they're the best. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. <sighs> um, I have some follow-up. Um, the Blu-ray, uh, this is owing to my own error last week. The Blu-ray that I, and as you can see, I just spelled something wrong in the notes because I'm trying to do two things at once. This, this, this proves to you that I pay attention to you because if I weren't, it would be really, really obvious. Um, but last, the error that I made last week was I own the Blu-ray player that is shown in last week's notes, which I think was a Sony. Um, that is the one that I have at home and use as a 4K Blu-ray player at home. Now, what I concatenated or goofed on was that I mentioned the thing where Jason Snell had told me about this. Um, have you heard of, had you heard of Libra Drive? Have you heard that term before? I'm getting confused with caliber, which is also spelled calibre. 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 It's like a teatra. Uh, well, mm-hmm. okay. So here's the thing. And I, I, there's no reason to go into a huge amount of detail about this, except I really liked working with this guy. He's, his uh, lady friend has health problems and, uh, you know, he could probably use the work and he does really good work. There's this guy named Alec, I want to say Coluzzi. You could probably give me a better read or you could have Federica read it to me because you won't. Alex Coluzzi is a fella. And over on the Make MKV Fora, uh, he's hung out a shingle. And this is the guy from whom, a la Jason Snell, <laughs> I think in his email to me, he actually said he's already started, like, he wants to build a shrine to Jason Snell because of how many leads he's gotten. This is a fella that will sell you uh, the Blu-ray player that you want, but he flashes it with this thing called Libra Drive. And as I understand it, I mean, basically Libra Drive does some magic to psych out um, the drive and it won't get confused about making, uh, copies of your, uh, your optical discs. And it works especially well with make MKV where I think it's, it's slightly sort of accelerated, like hardware accelerated. And you're able to use that. So there's a, there should be a little be link in show notes to, um, this guy, uh, Alex's page where you can still, uh, go and order these. I've been very happy with mine. I don't, I'm no John Syracuse. I don't like ripping discs. I always get it wrong. It takes a long time. I get confused. And like, it's, it's really sometimes easier just to like downy it from somewhere. But um, for those of you who are interested in looking at options for Blu-rays, you can go to that very not pretty forum page and see what, uh, what Alex can uh, set you up with. Does he, does he sell the drives or do you give him the drive and then he flashes it and sends it back? He does the whole thing. You let him know what it is you want to do. And in my case, I was like, hey, look, Snell told me about you. I heard you're great. I, you tell me what you think I need. I just want a way to do, you know, 4K um, Blu-rays and to, you know, do the stuff to, to back up my, my optical discs. And he set me up for, with it. He puts it in an OWC case, sends it all out to you, um, documents the whole thing really nicely. Um, yeah. So anyway, if you're, if you're the sort of person who has a large, uh, you know, um, I should have eaten today. If you have a large collection of DVDs and Blu-rays and you want to John Syracuse those into your Plex or similar, uh, you might want to check out Alex's stuff over on MakeMKV. It's forum.makemkv.com, but you'll find a link in show notes at relay.fm slash RD. Now, it's probably not going to be pretty and part of your whole like sophisticated new tech stack, but you might want to at least look into it. You never know.
I've already got a, a Blu-ray drive. I'm not sure if the uh it's mainly the the receiver that you the amp and receiver thing that is going to be the big piece for you, right? No, I'm. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. The, the more I the more I think about it, have these discussions. The more I think the stupid stand is going to be. <laughs> I, I keep worrying about all these uh, components and the specs and features, and what I should be worrying about is the physical connection of some cheap, you know, sixty dollar bent piece of metal that I'm going to screw into the back of my multi thousand dollar television. Well, you know, we don't get to pick the things in life that annoy us. Um, I mean, I guess we could choose to, I wouldn't consider that very wholesome, but the truth is if there's something that you use or interact with a lot, in my experience, I can't believe I'm saying this to John Syracuse, in my experience, it's not that I'm exactly picky, but like, I'm, I'm not a hunchback, but there are kinds of things where like something that really wouldn't bother anybody else might really bother me. Like I'm probably more like annoyed than I should be with somebody who's like mounted, a light switch upside down. I don't understand how you do that. I'm not sure I trust an electrician or even a hobbyist who, who installs that upside down. Um, but then, I mean, in fairness, now uh, Lutron Aurora comes along and you can put a dimmer. It's so, have you seen these? Have you seen the Lutron Auroras? Apropos of nothing. I've seen I these. don't know the brand name, but maybe. I mean, I don't know the, the product name. I know Lutron. but So these are, the idea is, this is considered, uh, this is a hue um adjacent product from the it's called Friends of Hue, which is <laughs> which is not a song by the rentals. But uh Friends of Hue is their name for Hue's name for like, hey, we work with this company and this will work with our stuff, and in some cases only our stuff. But it's really neat because you think about the classic dimmer switch that like my family had in the 70s and through today, you know, where you you often you click it to turn it all the way on, or you can dim it up and down, etc. This is so freaking clever. We have like three or four of these. So you get this thing. I think it's called the Lutron Aurora for the same people who do the Casita built-in stuff that's really terrific. And the idea is you get this thing and it looks like just a regular little freestanding dimmer switch. And what you do is you mount it on top of your uh, light switch. And what's neat is it doesn't care whether it's a ass backwards, upside down, 1926 installed switch or not. Uh, but then once it's on there, you can set scenes to associate with it. And like most Hue things, you get options. Like in our case, the one we use the most is in the kitchen. And I've experimented with, right now, I know it runs only the kitchen and the nook, but you could have that basically control like a whole part of the house and dim accordingly. But my family got sick of the lights going off in the bathroom when I turned on my nighttime TV lights. Um, uh, but I think it, I mean, again, I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but there's stuff in life where you're like, I know this shouldn't bother me as much as it does, but it seems frustrating that I, I can't get this the way I want the same way that I would order a sandwich or, or ask somebody to please install the light switch the correct way. It's, it's one of those little, I guess what, uh, Brady would call a paper cut. I'm looking at the webpage and they, they have this, uh, one of the images they say about advertising this, uh, Lutron Aurora product they say, doesn't compromise your aesthetics. And then they show a photograph of a light switch with a piece of tape over the switch, keeping it up. And I can't count how many times I've seen that in someone's house. Cause if there's some switch that just should never be turned off, cause like it runs the oil burner or it needs to always be on because we control yeah. that with the other switch and they just take some tape and you tape it on there and like <laughs> there, that'll stop everyone, including yourself. Like you have to tape it cause it's just instinct to turn lights Absolutely. switches off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, and uh, this solves that problem because it like, it, it, what you're trying to describe it like 
Think of a regular light switch. It just it clamps on with two, two light screws switch. you turn and it clamps it to whichever position is the is the on position. Yeah. But but then you've got a, a, a full on like hue dimmer that actually works. Right. The, the the dimmer, like your regular light switch is under the dimmer. The That's dimmer right. is like mm-hmm. on top of it. So you can't even see the light switch anymore because the dimmer is on top of it. Like it's a hollowed out dimmer. The dimmer goes over the top of the thing. It's very it's very clever. Well, I was um I knew I was fully committed to the hue lifestyle uh as I've said before, and you know, I, t- today, just for what it's worth, uh, I'm about to say something sounds contrary to this, but today, if I were starting all over today and I mostly wanted like smart lights, um, I, I would go with Nanoleaf stuff because I they offer a lot of really pretty cool stuff. And the Hue system is, I don't know, it, it's it's good and it's big, but I don't know if I started over, I don't think I'd start with Hue. But having said that, as I've stipulated before, things changed in our house when we got Hue tap switches. And hue buttons and hue dimmers. That's where we went from this being a rich man's hobby to something that was actually useful to people. And we have deployed so many of these tap switches. And for folks who haven't seen it, it's just a big, it's a big circle with one giant button that usually is on or off, and then three scene-ish buttons to turn on on or off scenes. It works with the hue lab stuff. So there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do. Um, but that to me, when you get to the hardware way of turning these lights on and off, you you really are sort of turning a corner with that said in our hallway john again i we live in a, we live in hobbletown we we um we have the most perplexing three light switches in our hallway and there's some kind of a secret knock to get them to work together and i always forget for years i would forget which is which but there's one that turns the basically the hall upstairs hall overhead light on and off there's another one that controls the front hallway and outside. And then there's the mystery meat one that controls the outside light, but it only will work if it's in, you've thrown it in the right position in conjunction with the second switch. Have you ever encountered these where there's some kind of like a, somebody has really not thought through the wiring. You have to, <laughs> you have to make sure that one of them is in the right slash wrong position in order for the other one to do what it's supposed to do. And it was, yep really crazy making. And so, uh, we put a, one of the mystery meat ones, we put a dimmer on that one and, uh, and Bob's your uncle, but I knew I was committed to this hardware button lifestyle when I bought a big bunch of those plastic covers that, and talk about aesthetics, yikes, not pretty, but the, the (laughs) professional way to deal with don't turn this off is not tape, but you can cover it with this little dingus. I think it might be nominally now, it can't be for child safety because you can get around it. But it, like the side of it will be open, but the other side is closed and it kind of reminds you, it helps you habituate yourself to like stop turning this thing off and on. And those are kind of cool and they're real. That's a cheap, that's a cheapy way to deal with that problem. Yep, I know those things too. They they don't look great. <laughs> no, they don't. They they look like a corrective boot or something. Um let's see, one last piece of follow-up. That I, did, I didn't mention this last week in detail because I hadn't used it very much given that was two weeks ago. But um, this is a follow-up to our discussion of streaming apps and John's wonderful uh, blog posts on the, the basics, the table stakes of what a streaming app should be able to do. And I just wanted to say, you know, relatively quickly, I really like the Peacock app. I like the Peacock service. I like the Peacock, Peacock, Peacock app. I heard Julia on Downstream today say very virulently that she does not like the Peacock app. 
I really like it, and I wanted to share it. Now, do you have the Peacock app? Are you using the Peacock? I think you said you had got it for Olympics, yes? Yeah, what else was I watching on it? Um, Vigil, I think I watched on, that's on Peacock, right? Um, I I didn't have enough time to really use the app much because I just watched that one show, but I did watch every episode of that one show, and I hate the animation on the playback screen. The, the, um, the timeline the, the... rises up from the bottom, it oh, goes down, yeah. and it rises up, and it goes down, and I do not need to see that a thousand times. Anytime you want to do anything, pause the but show. But if you click it, forward, if you do the light back. tap, John, you do the light tap, and it tells you everything. It's all on the screen. I, I'm not complaining about the information. I know, I know you're how you are. I, you're how like, you are. I just need it to yeah. be there immediately. I don't need to see it animate up from the bottom and then down below. That's not adding any information. I'm just not confusing. I'm not confused about where did the timeline go. I just make it disappear and appear. Is there a reduced uh, really, motion option on Apple TV? I don't even I know. Wish. No, none of these apps have settings. We know that. Yeah, that would be too complicated. Okay, anyway, well, I didn't spend any time in the rest of the app. Maybe the rest of the app is this, great. This is the part that, that John likes to browbeat me about because I keep getting it wrong and talking about the thing that's not his beloved blog post. But part two of this, I like the content on Peacock a lot. I uh, uh, and I, you know if you aren't listening to that show with Julia and Jason, check it out uh, downstream. It's really good. It's their show about streaming um, TV, the business of streaming TV. And Julia's a really smart cookie. Um, Jason's fine, um, but uh, I've mentioned him twice now. Um, but uh, let me get this out of the way. There's so much good stuff on Peacock. Uh, of course, we've been watching Joe versus Carol. Don't judge me. Um, it looms large in our what house. Is that? I don't even know what that is. Oh, it's the fictionalized well it's the it's the comedy drama series about uh joe exotic and carol baskin uh-huh. <laughs> carol baskin okay. is played by um kate mckinnon and <coughs> pardon me um joe exotic oh my god <laughs> sorry jim uh joe exotic is, is played by uh, the guy from hedvig John Cameron Mitchell Swayze, whatever his name is, the wonderful, talented guy from Hedvig plays. Yeah, I think uh, I saw an ad for this. Now that you mention it, it's it's campy, but it's a lot of fun. And Comic Lachlan is very, very funny as um, Carol Baskin's husband Howard. But I just wanted to say, like, okay, like I know this is not part of the blog post, so suffer me for a minute. But dude, there's so much good stuff on there. I mean, if you want all the NBC comedies, they're all there. They have good hubs. <coughs> I found, for example, today I found a curated by Kenneth. Kenneth Branagh section, like very sort of uh, criterion kind of thing. It's mainly an ad for Belfast, but um, there's so much pro wrestling on there. There's, there's just so much pro wrestling, like hours and like hundreds of hours of pro wrestling, WWE stuff. Um, but just really cool random stuff. Hey, Gruber, if you're listening, Johnny Carson, they've got some, not a lot, but some uh, like Johnny Carson stuff, Johnny Carson episodes. They've got Carol Burnett episodes. They've got all of the Columbo which I love. Um, they've got all the Adult Swim infomercials. Speaking of Howard, you know, for-profit online university, too many cooks, all that stuff is up there. So content-wise, which is not what we're here to talk about, I was really impressed. Oh, and as Julia and Jason said, the way they handled the Olympics was really good. It's real good. Uh, they were real good at, like, I just want to go watch, you know, all of this giant slalom thing or whatever. <laughs> but here's what I wanted to just say, and you can feel free to disagree as you will. But... um, that persistent uh, button slash choice that I crave in everything, John, which is I, let's say I got two minutes into episode five of Joe versus Carol. I open up the very first thing that pops up on screen. 
it's right there in your face at the bottom of the screen. It says, do you want to continue from where you were or do you want to start this episode over? That's worth the price of admission right there. And putting it right in your face like that is fine. It, it only takes a second to dismiss it if you want to keep watching. But I, I really like that option. I think that's really well done. The other nice piece of UI, I think, is if you are, you know, shotgunning, in our case, Joe versus Carol, um, we, we talked last time about, you know, I, I mentioned anyway that like with Apple TV, it doesn't really seem to have much of a sense of what the next episode is. If you've bought like a season, like uh, watching uh, season Cinco of Tim and Eric, and I constantly have to say, okay, now show me the next one. Click, turn, not a huge deal. This puts this little lozenge down in the lower right-hand corner. That is exactly what I want if I'm watching. I've just watched season, or just watched, let's say, season one, episode four of a TV show. And as the credits are rolling, sorry, Todd, it pops up a little thing in the corner. And it, then it says season one, episode five or whatever. It shows you a thumbnail image. It shows you the name of the episode. And then it starts a countdown of, I'm going to say three to five seconds. And boom, it goes straight into playing the next episode really efficiently. I'm going to put Peacock and HBO Max up there in terms of the maybe not perfect, but like surprisingly good at the stuff I care about. I like Peacock is what I'm here to say. My wife had some complaints about the Olympic coverage because that she'd watch, uh, she's watching snowboarding and she was constantly yelling at the television because they would, they would like not show you like who the person was like people with snowboarders all look very similar. They're all wearing like the helmets and their snow outfits or whatever. And they'd be going up and down the thing and they'd be like, who is this? Or then they get the end of it and you see who it is. And they'd say, and this person's earlier run, uh, when this dramatic thing happened. And so she'd try to go back and say, where is the earlier run? I don't, when did they never showed the, the earlier so run. Little. I can't find it anywhere. When did they start making the identification so little? Oh, you get like a little sticker on a helmet and you're supposed to figure out, you know, which which country they're yeah. from. It's maddening. Anyway, there's a lot of the yelling in television. I don't think that has to do with the Peacock app. It has to just do with how they were packaging the events. And very often they refer to things that were not in the stream. Like you go forward and back in the stream and it just wasn't there at all. But they just assumed that everyone had seen it. Or Anyway, lots of uh, new vectors for frustration with these things. But yeah, I'm glad that you like the Peacock app, but I just cannot stand yeah. that animation. Don't like an animation. Um, no. Yeah, but you know, and you, you know, you could go home tonight. Well, I guess you're home now. You could just go watch, you know, the best of Ric Flair collection or the best of Daniel Bryan, which is like over 250 minutes of Daniel Bryan. And his yes movement. He says, yes, yes, yes. So anyway, that's my thoughts on Peacock. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by our very good friends over at Memberful. You can learn more about Memberful right now by visiting memberful.com slash diffs. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience, and it's used by the biggest uh, creators on the web, including uh, big creators like me. More on that in a second. You can generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. Diversify it, the stream. You might have heard us talking about the Relay FM membership program. We'll hope to shout. Hope you're a member. You know, what you may not know is that Memberful is the platform that we use for that very program. So, so yeah, uh, it's real good, and, and they make it super easy to generate the extra revenue that you're looking for and to deliver bonus content to our members. Uh, a funny thing for me is, you know, I benefit because you nice people support the program. That's how I choose to look at it. But I'm also a, a client on the other end. 
where I, I uh, pay a lot of people I like through Memberful. I, I, I join, I subscribe, I get things. And uh, it's, it's a doddle to use. You got to check them out. Uh, are you not sold yet? Well, I can keep talking. Uh, let's say you're already producing content. You know, a lot of people produce content now. Maybe you're relying on advertising, which is great. Uh, or other means of income. Well, Memberful makes it easy to diversify that income with everything you need to run a membership program. Includes custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, thank you, free trials, private podcasts, and more. And But it leaves you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience. It's important to me. I hope it's important to you, uh, as well as your brand and your membership. It's all your deal. And now you can send paid email newsletters, okay, directly through Memberful without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can even publish your paid newsletter content to a Memberful-hosted members-only website. Members, members, members. There's no additional fee when you're signed up for Memberful's pro or premium plans. And plus, you'll save money compared to other popular hosted newsletter platforms. They're not naming any names, but you know. So if you're a content creator, if you're a creator of content, Memberful can help you monetize that passion. Monetize it. Monetize so right now, go. You get started for free. You go to memberful.com slash diffs. That's D-A-F-F-S. New credit card required. Memberful.com slash diffs. You go there now and you check it out. It could be the start of something exciting. Our thanks to Memberful for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. And now we're moving on to the whoops all uh this is gonna be the whoops all mini topics edition perhaps we have some mini topics oh yeah we're gonna clear out some minis here let's clear um, them out clear them out get them out of here this <laughs> first one, oh, the first one finally from several several weeks ago uh, a bunch of people sent it to me uh and Pub- I think published it, in uh, early february it looks like yeah it, may, it makes sense for this show this is a an article that went around <sighs> How was it framed? Um, well, what you I, saw was an infographic. The, what went around a lot was was the primary image from this article. That's what got su- I think got super passed around. Yeah. So the article itself, the title right now says, "You're doing Italian food all wrong," say Italians, and it has the the header image is a bowl of spaghetti with someone pouring ketchup all over it. Mm. This is obviously this is a whole subgenre uh, that I see in YouTube where uh, rea- it's a form of reaction videos where they'll have. Let's show native Italian people how people in other countries eat their food. Let's show, you know, uh, someone from China, like, a, you know, someone making fried rice in the Midwest and see how they react to it or whatever. Like, it's all about someone from a region famous for its food has to watch someone else try to make that food and then react to it. It's, mm. and I, I, I get tons of those videos in, mm-hmm. in my YouTube suggestions just because whose fault is that videos. Yeah. Well, I do watch a lot of Italian food, but I don't watch a lot of reaction videos, so I don't oh, know God, they're all no. there. Oh, no, no, they're terrible. I, I keep accidentally turning them on. Even on Nebula, I find myself like, oh, this is a guy reacting to like some Slender Man backstage at a mall. This is going to be mm-hmm. my full reaction video. And you're like, wait, wait, what? what, what? I, I Don't even explain this to me. Just... But but you but what's neat about this was, and the reason I think this caught on was this was this YouGov, which I think is a polling company maybe, and the idea is they're showing you based on, I don't have it open right now. I don't know how many people they polled, although we all know how painful that can be. But they said, hey, hey, actual people from Italy, it's not Italian-Americans, right? It's actual Italian people, right? 
Yep, they have little flags along the whole thing. What are the countries? Which ones uh, of these it'll, are it'll, okay? Which ones of these are okay? Which ones are not okay? From an Italian person's POV, like, is it okay to put ketchup on spaghetti? Yeah. So, and it does, it's not just Italy, it's Italy, Spain, Mexico, the UK, US, Germany, France, Australia, Poland, UAE, Sweden, Denmark, India, China, Singapore. Like, it's a whole bunch of countries, right? They asked them all about this stuff, but, it, but it's about Italian food things. And people kept sending it to me because they know I'm a stickler for uh, what they think <laughs> is Italian food. Uh, but of course, it's Italian American food. You, you love Hospitaliano, is what it is. You know, it's a, it's Italian American food that I'm a stickler for—a specific kind of Italian American food. And so I kind of have to cut the legs out of this entire thing and say, I don't care what people who live in Italy think of anything, because that it's not Ooh, like twist. I'm not I from like Italy. Yeah. Uh, and and on top of that, it, the regions in Italy vary so much. From you know, one thing I learned from cook, cooking shows from region to region, they all look down at each other because they say, "Well, you don't know how to make this dish. Well, you don't make this dish right." Like it's very so much just even within Italy. Forget about it in the whole rest of the world. But you know, that being said, they still did the survey, and so you, you can see, you know, have fun looking at the results to see what people think of these various things. This is insufferable. This is so insufferable. <laughs> I, I, I don't, love don't, you so you, much, but I hate this so much. Well, close, close the thing, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna t- ask it's you a about gr- it. The close thing it. to understand is, it is a. What's neat about it is that it is a grid, and it says, "Here's what Italian people think about, for example, the top one, the incredibly controversial topic of eating pizza for lunch." Fine. Uh, uh, I may have to just start a support show with with Casey. Um, and then you say, like in these other countries, some of which flags I recognize. What percentage of people think that's okay? And it's not Italian people in those countries, correct? Is it? No, no, it's just people in those countries. It's just people in Uruguay or whatever. Like, how do you feel about eating pizza with a fork rather than your hands? How many people think that's mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, so right away, like, so it's it's grouped by what the Italians think. So, like, the, the, the whole grid is sorted where the thing that most Italians approve of at the top and the thing le- the least number amount of Italians approve of at the bottom Eating pizza for lunch right away, I'm thinking whoever did this thing, it, I mean, maybe it was, I was done in the UK, so maybe it's different. But in, in America, if you were doing this, pizza for breakfast would be the thing that you would ask, not pizza for lunch, right? Because pizza for breakfast is I don't even know what I'm a, supposed to be mad about. What, what is, why would you have a problem with eating pizza? And luckily, that scores very highly. Italians think that's okay. But what, what because why? What, why would you? Well, that's what I'm saying. Lunch doesn't make any sense because pizza for lunch, but like. It's, you know, but pizza for breakfast is the, is the trope from the eighties of like, Oh, you're eating cold pizza for breakfast. You must be a teenager or a mutant Ninja Turtle or whatever you are. Isn't that so weird? My teenager eats pizza for breakfast. Ha ha. Right. But they didn't ask that. They asked pizza for lunch. Pizza is a lunch food. Like anyway, whatever. So 89, I think Hmm. this is maybe in Italy, America it is. I think these are percentages. So plus 89 means 89% of Italians approve, which means that there's, you know, 11% of Italians that don't approve of pizza for lunch, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense to me. But really whatever. Weird. I don't know. Yeah. Who's so to say weird. what they think in Italy? I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, even in, it's lower in the U.S. The U.S. is 86%. <laughs> okay. I, there's a topic you probably already caught. There's a, there's a related topic that is not for today, but related to this. But... Okay, so like, what what are some of these? Okay, how about this? There's a lot of these. These include here's the top here's the top four. So there's in three sections. What's acceptable to Italians? What's divisive among Italians, or as you say, divisive? And then what's unacceptable to Italians? And that's a whole big section of us. The top four that are acceptable to Italians: eating pizza for lunch, uh, having bolognese sauce with spaghetti. I okay. 
Um, eating pizza with I a fork. I can explain right. that one to you. To you I would, yeah, well, yeah, let me just get all these out and then you tell me what I don't know about Italy. And then uh, eating pizza with a fork rather than your hands. And fourth, uh, having meatballs with spaghetti. Secondi. Um, okay, get, run me through these, John. Why, why, what, so, what's the problem? So two of them, the bolognese one and the meatballs one, are basically like uh, variations of, does this dish exist in your country in the way it exists in our Oh, country? this is the Big Night problem, where Stanley Tucci uh, doesn't want to give the guy. Did you ever see that movie? You ever seen Big Night? No. Oh, dude, you'd love it. It's about, oh, Stanley Tucci. It's my first Stanley Tucci movie, Touch of the Tooch. He um he is a guy, and they have this failing restaurant because he's incredibly picky with this with what he'll serve to people. Um, but okay, so but that's but that's it. I made that joke about but like the courses, right? That's that's you're matching the wrong courses, right? That would be like getting a pile of fried calamari and putting it on your prime rib or something. Is that the idea? Uh, no, it's it's just the 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 existence of dishes. So in America, spaghetti and meatballs is a common thing because that's an Italian American food. Does spaghetti and meatballs exist in that form in Italy? Probably not. And so okay. when they say having meatballs with spaghetti, it's just plus 58, which, you know, it's it's approved, but it's not like universally approved because some people in Italy and some regions of Italy, spaghetti and meatballs is not a thing. And combining them seems weird because meatballs should be had separately or not at all or whatever, right? But surely people also in Italy are familiar with the American idea of spaghetti and meatballs because they see it in like Lady and the Tramp or whatever, right? Like other pe- people may be familiar I with Italian-American. I do that Italian all the American time. I push even, it with my nose. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not an American because we export so much of our culture through our media, uh, people might be familiar with it. And same thing with bolognese. Bolognese sauce with spaghetti. Uh, spaghetti bolognese, common dish in America as an Italian-American thing. But in actual Italy, bolognese usually used with differently shaped pasta. And doing it with spaghetti seems weird, but okay. still mostly approved. It's still 81, right? Mm-hmm. Eating pizza with a fork rather than your hands falls into the same category as the Seinfeld episode of eating the candy bar with a knife and a fork. Yeah, right? Snickers bar. It's, it's fancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could, you could do it, but it's not common and it seems weird. Um, <laughs> I may surprise you by saying that when we had pizza as kids, our parents always uh, – would cut up or have us cut up part of it when it's hot so we wouldn't burn ourselves. Like sort of for the first piece, you, when you were little, you'd get like a, the first piece cut up and you'd eat it with a fork and a knife. And then the second piece, it's cooled down enough so you don't burn the roof of your mouth. Um, but anyway, still generally approved all of those things. And then we get into the, uh, the, the uh, we're not quite into the that's a no good boss, but th- then we're not getting into that's not so good. Risotto as an appetizer or side dish. Oh my gosh! I saw I saw someone dear in my life put oil into spaghetti water the other day. Um, <laughs> a snapping dry pasta before boiling it. Oil in the water. Uh, adding plain pasta. Oh boy, here we go. Adding plain pasta to a plate or a bowl, and then adding the sauce afterwards. That means they didn't sauce it right, isn't that right, John? Yeah. So here's here's the thing. So this again, I don't quite understand the scale, but I think the, these ones, the divisive ones, are like plus two, plus one, minus one, minus four. Yeah. Which I think is like margin of error. It's maybe. like half. Yeah. You know, uh, why is that not fifty eight though? Why is that or not fifty two? I don't. Anyway, I, I think this is trying to say. Does this, does this explain the scale? Let's see. Um. Yeah. No, they don't explain their scale very. But anyway, these are divisive, where it seems like. I would I would guess it's within the margin of error. Like these are close enough that it's it could go either way. Yeah, half, half the people think it's okay, yeah, and half the yeah, people yeah. think it's not okay, right? But for me, uh, for the Italian American food that I want, snapping dry spaghetti before boiling it, never, absolutely never, one hundred percent against all the time, not even close. Okay. Because whatever regions of Italy influence the Italian American food that I'm used to, you just simply never do that, right? 
Same thing with putting all in the water. Never, ever, ever, ever. Right. But in Italy, it's divisive. You know, the other ones are oh, in the uh, plain pasta with bowl and adding sauce after, afterwards. Again, Italian American food. Never, ever, 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 ever. But in Italy, apparently half the people think that's fine. Uh, I don't know what accounts for that because I don't understand how, you know, maybe different regions in Italy have different ideas of this. But, it, you know, for, for me, these would be into the definite negative. Um, and having a risotto as an appetizer, a side dish. I don't, I mean, side, does side dish mean it's on your plate, but it's not the main course? I don't, you know, like, I well, know that like, the, the way uh, meals are done in Italy are different than they are in, in America anyway, in terms yes. of how many courses and when you have them, what time of day you have them. So I, I have no idea on that. But like, but like a lot of Italian restaurants I've been to will give you spaghetti with uh, red gravy as a side. Like when you get a protein, like you'll get, you might get a, mm-hmm. a steak or a fish or whatever, and that comes with a side of spaghetti. I, yeah. I, I did not know that growing up. I mean, hell, I, I like, I like, I like party cut pizzas. What do I know? Um, you know, I like little squares. I've always that my favorite shot. And of course, everybody has a terrible childhood pizza. I've come to believe like in Tallahassee, there was this one, I think I told you about this terrible, terrible pizza. It was basically like, it wasn't even like ketchup. Well, it certainly wasn't Heinz ketchup, but it was like ketchup on matzo bread and kids would come home from college <laughs> and freak out over getting to go back. And I was the same way about this place at our mall in Cincinnati that had party cut crappy pizza and it just made me happy. I mean, what there's does no party cut mean? Uh, little <laughs> little squares or rectangles rather than. Um, oh, that's so bad. No, why? No, why? Gonna, no, why? Why? Why can't I just have my, my pizza cut like a party? Why can't I do that? So it's a circle pizza, and if you cut it into wedges, every piece has a piece of crust for you to hold it with. But well, if these you cut are it into rectangular. Squares, you get pizzas. the middle squares that have no crust. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, okay. Who wants a middle square with no crust? Nobody wants that. Well, it depends. I like it. I like a crisp. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna keep my powder dry for this topic. I, you'll oh, feel see. free to defend your no, middle, no, your middle no. cut pizza. Center uh, cut I just, pizza. I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to crush this little tinkerbell you've created about this, these, these edicts that that have to be for all people in all times because this is, this is no, the way. Just, just for Italian American cuisine, not for oh, people sorry. in Italy, apparently. Sorry, I was wrong about being wrong. The um, but my question to you for some future one is because uh, you know I'm very interested in that idea of what is proper, doing things properly, uh, in the line item under many topics. What's the line between a strong preference and an enforceable natural law? <laughs> and I've been trying to think about whether I have any of these, which might just show you what a hillbilly I am. But like, think about like the people, well, that's not the good cheese stick. You got to go to old original Joe's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or you got to like, there's all these regional foods probably in Cincinnati people. I mean, I seem to recall people being like there's skyline people versus um, what's the other one. Um, I forget the name of the other place, but you know, Cincinnati's chili is its own thing. And certainly some people don't care for it. I grew up with it. So I, I like it, but I just, I, I think it's, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to, I just don't think I have that many things where I would feel comfortable telling somebody that they shouldn't eat that food because it's wrong. I just, it's I, and not I, I'm not you're saying think, that they shouldn't. You're just saying that there is, there is a, th- this is a thing is what you're saying, right? Like Cincinnati chili is a thing, right? And right. you may not like that thing and you may have different variations of the thing, but if you want to have that thing, here's how that thing should be, Right. Why? So, same thing why, with pizza. why can't like people if, just if, break their pasta if they like it's like a little pasta they can but then what they're having is not italian american that's, ins- food that's the completely ne- psychotic that is psychotic john just so you know no no it's just like it it's is. like a it's like a recipe or a dish it's like if you make apple pie it's like well i make apple pie but i put cheese in it it's like well that's fine if you like that, cheese but on that's pie not- all the time i'm just here to tell you that like okay i'll give you an example of this everybody 
Everybody has a, uh, 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 the people call them different things, blinkers, turn directional indicators. Everybody's got blinkers on their car. Everybody should use them. You should, you should, you should use blinkers. If you're a person who drives, you should use them and you should signal uh, pretty much always. If an ambulance goes by, you should pull over. There are certain things that I believe, that's the closest thing I have to natural law is some things like that. And you know what? Now that I think about it, most of mine are going to be about stuff like what we have previously called spaces. Like if a door, if a door was, uh, if a door is, oh, it's sort of like a Chesterton's fence thing. Like honor the previous state of something, unless the previous state of that was uh, uh, an unintentional mess, in which case clean it up. I have things like that, but I don't think I have that many food things. I think, and this is just the, the, the keloids of my youth title, which is that there's, People do too much wax stuff to vegetables. Like I, I'm a very Marcus sort <laughs> what, of person. What do they do to them? Well, boiled, a big one I think is boiled um, Brussels sprouts as opposed to roasted Brussels sprouts. Uh, but see, I'm not, this, this is a great yeah. example though. Like yeah. cooking has tons of these things. I am, I'm sure that there is I'm some I'm just here to say don't specific... boil Brussels sprouts. Like, write it down. No, That's wait. what I'm saying. I'm sure there is some specific regional cuisine where mm. boiling Brussels sprouts is essential. It's probably Irish. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just <laughs> guessing. Yeah. But like there's probably one where they would say when, when you have Brussels sprouts in the style of insert whatever region or whatever, they must be boiled to death. Right? <laughs> And you may not like that, but they're going right. to say, look, if you, if you want to have authentic whatever food from my town and whatever, the Brussels sprouts have to be boiled to death. And you say, well, I hate that. They taste terrible and they're all sulfury and it's gross and I don't like it. Yeah. Um, I say, well, okay, that's fine. Then you don't like this food. But this is like every regional cuisine, every sort of, you know, lots of what we call ethnic foods here or whatever. Like, I don't know even what that means in the context of the world yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I get what you mean. Like, yeah. That that have have a specific dish that 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 they that they sort of take to heart that this is our dish and it's made in this way and that you know if you want to make this dish here's how you do it if you want to make something that's kind of like this go for it but if you're going to make like I've made you know uh, authentic Italian pasta and you make it with cream cheese someone's going to say well is that authentic what authentic Italian American pasta but like, from what the if New you York don't care metro if it's region? Authentic. What if you just like cream cheese? That's fine, but mm-hmm. there like Comma. there is that's what recipes are. There's instructions mm. for making a specific thing and you can change yeah. the recipe and that's okay. fine. I'm not saying we can't you can't eat that and we're not even saying you have to like it. Like I don't like boiled Brussels sprouts either, but there's probably some I, I dish think this is that, how Stalin started. Make, this is, this is yeah, this is how Stalin started. I'm pretty sure. I yeah, I I don't know. I just I I don't like to yuck on somebody's yum when it comes to food. Um, and I'm trying to think, I know I must have things like this, but like even, well, even you all... have the steaks, uh, you don't like a well done steak, but maybe there's some dish that the steak has to be, I don't even know one of these, I'm making this up, but like the, the steak must be well done. And you can say, well, I don't want to do that. Can I make that thing, but not have the steak right. well done? It's like, yeah, but now you're making a different recipe. One time, uh, when I visited South Carolina, they had, a. I mean, South Carolina has a bunch of wackadoo stuff. They've got the thing where like, if you sell alcohol in a restaurant, you have to sell it in individual airplane bottles. Like mm-hmm. if you want to go to a liquor store, there's always a red dot outside because that's some kind of like a, a prohibition era thing. And But the one that killed me in South Carolina is what you said, which is I've gotten this in South Carolina and I this might have gotten this in some counties, but they will not, you can't get beef, at least then, if memory serves, you can't get beef less than medium well. That it's got, <laughs> which is to say the internal temperature has to be like, you know, because this is during like the mad cow times and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. 
But like, I mean, I, uh, but I wouldn't begrudge anybody who likes it that way. And there's even some art to it. Like if you want to do Pittsburgh style where it's like raw in the middle, but burnt on the outside, like, yeah, I, I honor that. Well, that's a good, that's a good example. I never, I yeah. never heard of that. Pittsburgh style steak, uh, burnt on the outside, raw on the inside. If you make, if you say, I'm going to make Black Pittsburgh style yeah. steak and you make it so that it's burnt all the way through. Well, mm-hmm. you haven't done it right because the whole mm-hmm. point of Pittsburgh steak apparently is that it's burnt on the outside and raw on the inside. Yeah. And it's not to say you shouldn't eat the other one or you shouldn't like the other one or that you should like the Pittsburgh steak, but like recipes have instructions and ways that they're made and named. That's true. And those you put the cream cheese things. in the water before the oil? This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Instabug. You can learn more about Instabug right now by visiting try.instabug.com slash diffs. Building mobile apps presents some challenges, and bugs, crashes, and performance issues can be a nightmare for developers. But what if you could not only detect all these issues, but you could also get a holistic understanding of the quality of your app from your user's point of view? Well, Instabug's lightweight SDK grabs all the insights you need to build top-quality apps through comprehensive bug and crash reports, performance monitoring, and real-time user feedback, and that's all in one SDK. With Instabug, you can continuously monitor and measure the performance of your app as perceived by your users. You can empower your users to report issues and ask questions seamlessly right from inside your app. And you're going to get all the information you need about bugs, crashes, and other issues. And then you'll get them fixed in record time, all with a focus on privacy and security. And you don't need to worry about the hassle of switching to a new tool. It only takes a minute to integrate Instabug into your app, and it fits right within your workflow with support for Jira, Slack, Trello, GitHub, Zendesk, and over 10 other popular tools. Pretty wild. So uh, why not join over 25,000 top mobile developers around the world who use Instabug to ship high-quality apps? If you want to find out more, yeah, you go to try.instabug.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Once again, try.instabug.com slash diffs. Our thanks to Instabug for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Um, my kid, so when I make French fries at home, I get, or uh, this is not a placement, I get the Orida brand, um, I think they're called fast food fries or something. They're really good, and they're really crispy, crunchy, and I like them, and my kid likes them. But, and, uh, but you know, my kid, who's a, who's a victim of public school lunches, is like, oh, God, it's so good to have, like, regular French fries. I'm like... I mean, how do you screw up French fries? My kid I had, insists. I had really good. Maybe I had I had really good French fries from like a sandwich place. It shocked me. Like we we go to these burger places close by. Yeah. We go to go to Shake Shack. We go to Five Guys, and the fries oh, are wow. just all over the Ugh, map. God, like it, it depends in on and like out who's... fries are so revolting. I I think a lot of the, a lot of places don't get the fries right. But my kid insists that the the fries at their school. My kid insists the fries are boiled, and I said I don't think that's possible. I don't think <laughs> you can boil. <laughs> well, it's I was a, like, get a photo, uh, get a photo for see? me of the steam table with the with the boiled you're, fries. You're, we're, we're both doing it right now. French fast boils. Food they should call style, them French boils. Fist, fast food style <laughs> French fries have to be a certain way. If they are yes. not crispy, but instead they are soggy, they have done it wrong. Not that the saying soggy French yeah. fries are bad. Maybe yeah. you like soggy French fries, but we're both thinking of a specific thing, which is probably like sort of the idealized sort of McDonald's shoestring French fry. That's what we're both thinking of. And yep. we know what it's supposed to look like and we know what it's supposed to taste like. And if it doesn't look and taste like that, 
it's something else. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's bad and you shouldn't eat it, but we're telling you that's not right. What we're saying is uh, okay. American fast food French fries should be like this. And but everybody in the country can picture it. And everybody in the country knows when it's right and knows when it's wrong. It's not a value judgment saying if you mm, eat soggy right. French fries, you're a bad person. But that is a thing. We know what French fries should be like to be the thing that we are all talking about. And that's what everything on this list is. Yeah. Okay. I think it's still a preference. Now, now unacceptable to Italians. Um, there's a lot of these. Um, I don't want to steal your thunder. Could you, could you, whatever would interest you from the list of, uh, that's a no good boss to Italians. Are there any of these probably what, probably 10 or 12. Are there any of these that particularly grind your gears except for the obvious 82% that saying you can't put ketchup on pasta. <laughs> I mean, that's I, you know, I'm not, I, I think you should do it. You have a campfire spaghetti party, you know, in Romania, mm-hmm. that could be nice. But are there any of these that particularly grind your uh, gears that you would uh, drink a cappuccino after not adding salt, uh, <laughs> having garlic bread with a pasta meal. Okay. That seems really weird to me. To I mean, that's think- a good highlighting of the difference between Italian American food and Italian food in Italy. Yeah. That's not a thing. Italian American food. That is a hundred percent a thing. So here's a big difference. Right? Um, Although that's not, yeah, th- that's like what minus fourteen. I still don't understand these things, but it's, it seems like that it's it's not fifty fifty, but it's it's leaning towards negative. Well, if we figure it out, we'll have it in follow up. Are any of these that particularly grind your gears? Are, are you one um, of those that, people, like Casey, people who argues, or Jason, people third time that argues about whether it's okay or or preferred to have pineapple on pizza? Is that a hate crime? Uh, I think we've discussed that on past shows, or maybe we discussed it on Robot or Not. Robot or like, Not. That's, yeah, that's a that's a, actually a, an Italian American cuisine thing as pizza like hawaiian pizza like it or not is one of the canonical <laughs> foundational <laughs> american pizza Why does flavors anyone care? this is america man i know <gasps> but the, i mean i don't this it just it just is and i and it's not popular in italy and that's fine um i i totally yes. understand that but like i don't i don't particularly like hawaiian pizza but it it's it is a staple yeah. of of american pizza it's not it's not a weird new thing uh it's not going away it was there from pretty early on. I think it might have come. It was always called Hawaiian pizza. I don't know if it actually came from Hawaii, but I yeah, understand ham, it ham being and pineapple weird is what I people. think of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of these are just silly, like not adding salt to the boiling water for your pasta. I mean, I guess yeah. you can make anything and not put the, uh, leave out some of the seasoning. And depending on how essential that seasoning, people think that seasoning is, like you might notice it or you might like try making any meal, like try making a steak, but don't put any salt on it. I mean. It'll still be okay, right. but people will say, this tastes like you forgot the salt. And you say, yeah, I did. Yeah. It's the same thing with not salting the water with the pasta. It's probably going to be fine, especially if it's very salty sauce, but mm-hmm. you might notice if it's missing. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I've done a lot of these. Cheese on seafood. That's a big uh, Cheese on seafood. Doesn't American sound thing, halal. but, but it, it doesn't sound halal know. at all. Uh, halal at all. Huh. Um, yeah. uh, or kosher. <laughs> cream and carbonara is a very popular one online. It's talking about the video reaction videos. Because it Watching looks somebody make carbonara, when the cream comes out, it's a big reaction moment all the time. And that's because, because that's not... so what is that? That is a uh, carbonara, if memory serves, is uh, not, uh, it's not bacon, but it's a bacon-like um, a, a cured meat. Guanciale and then, is okay. traditional. And, but the, 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 the white creaminess comes from, uh, I'm guessing, cheese, not cream, correct? Yeah, there's no actual cream in in the recipe from Italy. And when people make it in Italian restaurants here, they make they have something on the menu called carbonara or something or other. But it wildly varies. I mean, they put peas in it. They put cream in oh, it. Oh, yeah, it's, I've done that. I used to make carbonara, quote unquote, with like, I would make it with bacon, shaker cheese, and some uh, 2% milk. 
and a little pepper, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. At this point, I almost feel like like the Americanized <laughs> version of that is its own thing with a formula. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Like, 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 uh, like, what is it? What's the one? What's the one that was invented in San Francisco? Um, not chow mein, but chop suey, I guess. One of those. Oh, yeah, like, no, uh, Chinese American food is has very little bearing on actual Chinese food, and oh, there are definitely uh, this I know. This I know there. in my neighborhood yeah. where. I lived here, and uh, there's a little local Chinese place that I used to get Chinese from, and it's it's pretty authentic. But there's basically two menus, and I used to go in there, and I would say to the, you know, again, oh, can I please get the chow mein and the wonton soup and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then one time I went in, I never tell you this, I went in and I said, yeah, this um duck with XO sauce, uh, that sounds really interesting. And you can't see, him, but he closes his eyes and just goes. Mm-mm. He just shakes his head left to right. He wouldn't. He wouldn't sell it to me. I think he got tired of adventurous <laughs> young dot com men coming in there and then getting something that's basically like uh, like duck throats in black sauce. I think he probably was tired of accepting returns on that. I'm guessing. Yeah, from what I, what I know about Chinese American food, like because um, a lot of the a lot of dishes that we're familiar with uh, were dishes made in Chinese restaurants yes. to try yes. to get appeal to American customers. So like, <laughs> right, let's take right, right. some food that we sort of know, but let's change it in a way so that the Americans like it and come back to our restaurant while still maintaining, you know, the other menu, like the real Chinese menu for the, for the actual Chinese which, people. Which we is, sell it to, must be said, know. is at this place, I think in Cantonese, but I mean, it's, it's all Chinese characters. Like you're, you're not going to be able to guess what the thing is that's on the specials today. Yeah, and and my understanding of the Italian American experience of why all the dishes are weird here is a lot of having to do with people coming to America, and suddenly the available ingredients are so different than they were back home. In particular, wow, look at all this meat we have access to. Look at all this oh, inexpensive sure. meat. I got a good, I got a good union job. Or I'm working as a police officer or whatever. I can finally feed my family, and I have access to more meat than I know what to do with. So suddenly, all these Italian uh, foods that might have had a little tiny bit of meat in them get, you know, bowled over and you get your Sunday dinner with like seven different kinds of meat inside a red sauce with pasta. That's not a thing that existed in Italy. <laughs> that got created by the wealth of new ingredients available to Italians in New York City that they right. could never have dreamed of back home, right? And that's that's how you get a cuisine for me. Anyway. And the other thing of like making pizza because it seems like, you know, we, we try to sell a bunch of food that Italians know about and pizza turns out is something that not just Italians like everybody's like. And so that starts selling and you just, you know, one one place copies the other and you just, you know, yeah. go to the races with that. Um, that does make sense. Um, Big Night, 1996. Um, just to correct myself here, Stanley Tucci is actually the front of house guy. It's Tony Shalhoub. The wonderful Tony Shalhoub is the mercurial cook. It's got Elizabeth, no, no, Isabella Rossellini. Um, I think you would like it. It's a fun indie from 96. It looks like it's not streaming anywhere for free except Fubo, but, um, check out big night. And it, it, the, the big culmination is he's going to, I think it's called Tim, Timbale. He's going to make this big, like pasta cake that looks amazing. Yeah, have you ever heard of it? Is it called Timbale? Is that what it's called? Like a big drum ring a bell. Timbale food. Cause it kind of looks like a big drum. Yeah, yeah. So, God, go look up T I M B A L E. Um, derived from kettle drum. Uh, yeah, and it's basically like it's sort of like you know a little bit like ziti, I guess. Kind of, it's a big baked thing, but they're real good. Um, I'm sure there are books about this. I'm sure there are masters, you know, theses about this, dissertations. But I mean, so what were we? We were making something at home. Oh, I was telling my kid. 
Uh, I just I got a sandwich uh, last weekend, and I got uh, the sweet Maui onion. One of my favorite exclamations. I got the sweet Maui onion uh, chips, and I was describing, um, you know, uh, to, to my kid as a fan of righteous gemstones. I said, "Oh, these are really good because they're almost exactly a cross between a funyun and a potato chip." And I was thinking about the cultural heritage of onion flavors in the United States, and I like I I do wonder like how many people younger people even today who like certain foods would know, okay, that dip that everybody makes with the onion soup dry mix, like that, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that came out of a recipe book. There are so many things we make, especially, you know, the green bean casserole that comes straight out of like Campbell's soup books and like people trying to like in the post-war era, trying to like stretch their dollar. There's so many foods that like, it was like, Campbell's, you know this, but like Campbell's way of like, we want to sell more cream of mushroom soup. So get these dirty onions, put it in here with some canned beans. And now you have this delicious treat. There's so much stuff where like, I, I, I wonder if a lot of us maybe don't know the provenance of uh, some of that stuff. I still don't know why my family, my family made all of the things like, like here on the page for Timbali, which we'll put in notes. You can see what looks like one of those Tony Randall recipe cards from the seventies. One of those regrettable foods, lilacs type regrettable foods, things. My family made all that stuff. My, my my grandmother used to make something called heavenly hash. Don't look it up. Real real bad. My 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 grandma could could ruin a wet dream. She just really did not have it in her hands to make to make a good dinner. One of her favorites was uh, armor dried beef with <laughs> chicken parts and then some kind of particularly tangy cheese on top. Not even like a fancy like a Gruyere. But don't I mean now how did you so you had family that even lived in Levittown? How much did those kinds of recipes those folksy American recipe book things. How many of those trickle down in your family, do you think? I feel like the Italian-American food blotted out the sun, sort of. Uh, mm. The closest we could get is my my grandmother's, what she would call Southern fried chicken, which is, again, hilarious for a little old Italian woman in Levittown to be making something that she thinks is called Southern fried chicken, but it was straight out of like McCall's magazine or whatever. I don't know, whatever, like the, <laughs> right, like right, the right, housewife right. magazine, you know, good housekeeping magazine. It was skinless chicken parts mm-hmm. with mayonnaise slathered on them dipped in breadcrumbs and then put in the oven that is so far from anything Ooh. having to be southern or fried that's so that's, moist I, and it was <laughs> so so straight out of one of those one of those you know and that was i think it's the only non-italian meal i ever remember her making and it read to me even as a kid is like uh, this is from Good Housekeeping magazine. You got this out like the same what you get out of the magazine or like the the ad for the Campbell's soup or whatever. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was 50s housewife stuff of like you need to make meals for your family, but you want it to be convenient. And with this magic modern technology, you can just buy this dried thing of onions and sprinkle it on top of these canned green beans and chuck it. You know, it was like it was like, hey, I can make a fancy meal with a bunch of ingredients through the magic of modern technology in the space age. Now I don't have to dry bread and fry these onions. I have a can of them. <laughs> And just, yes. you just shake it on. I just realized I may. Well, first of all, I, I always I always get my panties in a wad about this topic because I just I think people should be allowed to like what they like. But I have they a specific. Can. No one is saying they can't. You are saying that you do that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I've not said it like a hundred uh-huh. times, and you're not hearing me. You did that. Yeah. Um, there's a delightful show uh, out right now called Abbott Elementary, and uh, it's a it's it's a little bit modern family ish, but it's uh this very funny workplace sitcom of uh, these people who work together in, uh, um, you know, a, as we now say, urban Philadelphia elementary school. And it's delightful. 
Um, it's got some really good people. It's got that ki- the kid who played Chris on Everybody Hates Chris, who's now this very handsome. What is uh what is this on? What service? I watch it on Hulu, but it, I want to say it's pr- I, it feels like an ABC. It feels very it's modern a network family. show. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. But it's I mean it's it's you know I mean it's not The Wire, but it's a lot of fun, and my family likes it. We watch it. But th- in the most recent episode, uh, the kid who was the kid on Everybody Hates Chris, uh, who's a teacher there, and he's he's kind of the Eddie Albert like fish out of water. Like he's the really normal one at this wackadoo school, but it's just so funny. It made me think of you because everybody's eating pizza and talking about pizza. They're talking about, Oh, the best Philadelphia pizzas, blah, blah, blah. And you got to get this Philadelphia pizza. And they're like, well, what do you, what do you like? And he's like, uh, yeah, I, uh, I like, uh, Baltimore pizza. I like, I like it to be really, really wet. <laughs> <laughs> but what what this turns into is he's stalling because he he only likes a very small he's almost like Alex. He likes a very small handful of foods. He like eats mm-hmm. eats a cracker one at a time. But he had to come up with something to say. This is why he claims to like this wet <laughs> Baltimore pizza because it's totally it's anathema for anybody to say I don't like pizza. Right? And of I mean, course, that's the, the thing with the, the with the wet pizza and your or your weird party cut pizza. Everybody has some hometown pizza that they like in their style. Oh, absolutely, for, absolutely. Right? E- even yeah, yeah, if yeah. Uh, objectively it's gross, and even if it doesn't match at that all, that was my point. I'm telling you, every one. every town has these these right. crappy places, and it could be burgers, but it's often pizza. I think the pizza of your childhood, wet or dry. However, he likes it. I mean, um, I'm, I'm hoping somebody's childhood pizza is not like the Chuck E. Cheese pizza because that would be super sad. I'm hoping at least it is like a, a not a non-chain, you know, like because if someone's home pizza is like Domino's, I feel like that doesn't count. Oh, you mean like Stouffer's Stouffer's French bread pizza with the it's got the little caraway seeds on it? Mm. French bread pizza. Boy, but, still yeah. Those. Anyway, obviously, childhood foods like that's that's why the green bean casserole or whatever like. You, you still might be nostalgic for it. Um, and the good thing about those things made with processed foods is you can, if those foods are still made, you can remake them authentically, mostly at any time because they don't really change those ingredients that much. That's true. That's true. Well, I'm glad we settled that. Now, you said to me that there are, uh, uh, these exist, I have, this website's being weird with me, so I'm looking at it in reader view. Are there others of these for other countries' cuisines, did you say? Or is it just that oh, no, other this, countries? This grid's on... got tons of other countries. In oh, it, I if see you really what you're saying. I see what you're what, saying. You know, like people in Australia think about this or whatever, but it's, it it gets very silly very fast. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. Just, maybe I'll see if I can find some good reaction videos and throw them in. Oh boy, quote unquote good reaction videos. Ah, uh, make that make that sloppy sloppy wet wet pizza. Uh thank you very much for sharing that. Did we have one more? I feel like we did. Where did I write down? Do we have one more. Um, clicking. One more minute. Yeah, you got a, you got some questions about Git. Oh gosh, I hope this isn't too boring. This might be really fast. Um, so I, I'll try. To, I'm gonna try to avoid the X Y problem. So like right now, as I've gotten just barely into and not really quite understanding, but messing around with with GitHub, I have a folder inside of Documents called Repositories, and that's where I've been putting repositories. Which is fine, because generally speaking, like there's a thing over here that I want to deal with, and then I'm going to put that on GitHub, or I'm going to do something with it. I guess my question is, here's two, two different ways of looking at a, at a Grecian vase. Number one, um, there are files, for example, that I would like to have in a repo, but uh, is that what you call it, a you know, repository? I, but, but I want, they need to live somewhere else. So 
it's my understanding you can't just, you oughtn't go around willy nilly saying, well, this thing in tilde library slash application support that this folder is now a repository. That seems that's a bad idea, right? You don't want your repositories like living somewhere functional, right? I don't think that should be a problem because the only thing that makes something a Git repository, as far as I know, and I'll disclaimer, I'm not a Git expert, yeah, um, yeah, is a dot .git directory on the top level, right? Okay. And I don't think any application is going to care about that dot .git directory. They're just going to ignore the thing, it. Th- this goes two two different ways. Like, so for example, the uh, well, they're both practical examples. One is that uh, I use Task Paper for task stuff. And task paper has configuration really, I mean, not, it's not like P list or a JSON. It's just basically like, remember what tags I like to use. That's the configuration file. It's just whatever configuration dot task paper and dot less files for styling, you know, the, the way it looks. Um, those live in, like I say, library application support slash task paper probably. Um, and so that's one example. Another example is like the stuff that I want to like put into a repository that's like written stuff. I want it to be like a done draft. So I'll draft stuff. And part of this is the psychological desire to keep me focused when I am writing on the writing part, which is I do an NV alt or whatever. Suffice to say it like on Dropbox, let's put it that way. But the repository that has those files and then shoots them up to the moon that lives over in tilde documents repositories. So I guess my question is, and I got it's got to be something like rsync, but like if you've got stuff outside of your repository that needs to go into the repository but not be the only place it lives, or the corollary that I've got stuff that needs to go be put somewhere else other than the repository, is that making sense? What do I do? What am I supposed to do? I mean, you could R-Sync? do what you're doing and have a repository in one place and the place where they go someplace else and then just shuttle the things between. Like that that will work. If And it, it let the, the it seems upsides, like that takes a lot of the value out of it. Well, the upside is that you have all your stuff. Like when you look at the repo on GitHub, it uh-huh. makes sense to you. It's a, it's a bunch of files that are not strewn all over the place, but are sort of collected in one place. And you know that they have to go. This file needs to go in this library folder. And this file needs to go in that thing. But you can look at them all together and it's convenient. So that's, I feel like, the upside. But the downside yeah. is now you need something to shuttle them back and forth and maybe that whole process is weird and you forget to do it or whatever, right? You mm-hmm. can actually make a repo. Um, again, I'm not a good expert, but I'm, I know enough to know that this should probably work. Um, you could make a repo, for example, like you can make your home directory uh, a Git repo, but obviously you don't want everything in your home directory to but be you a just Git make repo. So how do you deal with that? Well, you, just exclusions. Yeah, you just make a, dot, a Git ignore file mm-hmm. and essentially, or there's probably some way to do a, a Git include type of thing where you, where it's a sparse repo where it ignores everything in your home directory except for these seven files, right? Mm, and those okay. seven files are going to be at the full path. They're going to be from your home directory and, you know, library applications, blah, 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 blah. And when you look at the repo in GitHub, It'll be, you'll see library applications, it'll, you know, it'll be a sparsely populated tree of files. And that way you, the files never need to go anywhere. And then .git okay. directory just lives in your home directory. That feels uh, risky. That feels risky. It's, I mean, it depends on what your goals are. Like yeah. the, the downside of that is your repo looks weird with like 17 directories deep and this finally you get to a file, right? But the upside is you never have to remember to copy the files from one place to the other. Uh, all you yeah. have to remember is to commit and push every once in a while, right? I think the thing that finally got me to ask you about this is I've really fallen in love with, um, I think it's called Git, or sorry, Gist Book, um, which is a VS Code extension that is so neat. Um, I mean, the, the, what it does on the tin that immediately appealed to me is you can manage your Gists 
from inside VS Code as its own sort of, not a tab, but as its own little area, which is great. But it also means that I was wondering why this had so many downloads and it does, this does so much. If you've set it up, if you set up your um, GitHub repository to be wiki friendly, you could actually be like running a wiki off of this as well. Like almost all the stuff that you would do. I think this is exclusive from GitHub pages, but I'm not sure. But it's just a really neat way to, to manage all of that. So like, but like the reason I mentioned it here is like, there's some stuff that I would like to, I'm abusing this word live. Like right now, files like my, what I call my run X files, my running files live in Dropbox and are usually utilized. I get to them through, you hate when I say that. I try to get at them then with, you know, NVAlt or with, um, you know, Ulysses or whatever suits what I'm doing or task paper, right? Task paper, those are all task paper files. They, they all live there too. It's just that like, if you've got stuff in a repository, but you want it's, I don't even know how to say this exactly. But like, if I've got a file that I'd like to be in this other place other than the... So, okay. Should I be, A, making repositories where stuff lives, or B, finding a way to get stuff out of the 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 the, the good, bespoke, dedicated repository area, a la something like rsync or chronosync? Should I be doing something to move those? Hazel, I guess, would be another one. Is there is there one practice that's better than the other? I mean, so I feel like to get the value out of Git, it it all hinges on you uh, something something in your in your process periodically committing and pushing. Yes, because if that if you never commit and push, then what's the point in having it in a repo, right? Right. It's, right. it's the commit. It's the making the commits and the pushing to someplace that's not your well, machine. Well, if for no other reason, then my two Macs that I use will automatically, you know. Be, be be synced up in a non yeah, or, or yeah, way. pushing and, and pushing and pulling right so like if, mm-hmm, if you just sure. do a git repo locally but you never commit and never push your things anywhere then what have you done you've done nothing right and so like what is the workflow for doing the pushing the pulling does it happen every hour does it happen every time you save a file does it happen manually like you have to kind of decide how you mm-hmm. want that to happen but once you've once you've chosen that if it is a type of thing where oh it just happens like once a night or something then it doesn't really matter where the repo lives because once you've automated that once a night thing, you could also automate the copying of those files to the place where they're supposed to live. You know what I mean? Right. But if it's the type of thing where you're, where like every time you save a file anywhere under this tree, you want some background process to notice and automatically do a commit and a push up to GitHub for you behind the scenes without you even knowing it and mm-hmm. having your other machines just pull every five minutes to, to see if there's any new changes, uh, then I would want the repo to be where they live because I wouldn't want the files to be like yanked out from underneath things. Although you do have to worry a little bit about like, I don't know if, uh, if Git updates are atomic, right? Like if you pull down a change to a large file, is there a moment where the file is gone? And then a moment where the file is there with the new content, or is there ever a time where the file is half there? Um, especially for things like PLS, because there's there's a a pref daemon on the Mac that keeps that stuff in memory. So even if you change the PLS file, the pref daemon may dump out what it had in memory, overriding the changes you just made. So there's a lot of tricky stuff there. Right, uh, right. That doesn't have anything to do with Git, just has to do with how the Mac No, no, that that, that totally makes sense. So, but like, you know what it is? It's um, not the proscenium effect, but it's, okay, so you remember how this all kind of started? Well, it started with, I would like to do this project in public, but then quick on the heels of that was, uh, yeah, I do want this to be in public, but then it was also that I... Um, well, how can I put this? I, I don't want to accidentally walk on stage and have my balls hanging out. 
And like, if I'm doing what I consider dress, so I've got, I've got like these sort of canonical, you know, where I'm writing all the stuff in this document, that's all in this VS code. But that comes out of this running, again, a running document where I'm adding things in no particular state of dress. But like, I have an idea or a phrase or something I know will trigger, trigger me to think about this later. Obviously, I don't want that even near the stage, if we're using this theater metaphor, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I just, I'm trying to figure out like, like when you do, when you're doing development in whatever you use for version control and team stuff, like that lives in something like a repo, you go, you work on it, but like, you don't have like a third location where you put stuff for most programming stuff, right? Uh, it, it kind of depends. Um, for me, for most of the stuff that I'm doing, no, because like server side stuff tends to sort of run from where it is. So you can run the server right out of the repo. Right. Right. Like, it's not like it gets like bundled up and taken someplace else, but some I'm just nervous depends. about putting anything out there. And it's not even like, I'm not saying I have something I'm particularly ashamed about or want to hide, but, but as much as I want to do, there are projects I would like to do in public. I want the version that goes up in public to be the version I wanted to go up in public and even setting aside the confusion of like, oh, I don't want to have these, you know, clobber each other or whatever. It's also just that like, I'll think about it and come up with a better, a better question for I mean, next time. If, if you want to deal with that type of thing, you could do all your work in a branch and then just merge the branch into the main one. And then have people the main see one. it. Uh, I don't know if you can, if you can change. Like, I don't even, I don't even necessarily want people to see my revisions on, on stuff because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fixer. I'm a micro fixer. And I feel ashamed. Yeah, you can also compress uh, multiple uh, commits into a single commit, I think, and uh, and get so oh, your seventy five changes cover my tracks. Um, and yeah, what if there, um, you can do lots of stuff and get to? to but I don't know right. what GitHub's controls are for like private versus public branches or whatever. Like when you work in companies, everything everyone in the company can usually see, at least in the companies I work for, can see this stuff. But for like things that are actually public and you just want the main one to be public, maybe you can hide the other branches. I don't know. You should look into that in GitHub. I will. The key thing is the is the key. Boy, it's so fun to fiddle with, though. Well, I appreciate the tech support on that. Um, yeah, sorry, going to be more helpful on that. No, Again, no, no, you were totally expert. helpful. I, I know, um, I know, just enough yeah. to sort of get by. I, like, like I said, this on ADP. Like I, I'd been using my little my little fake uh, private bespoke blogging engine that I made for myself all these years ago for my blog that I never update. And only <laughs> recently it. did you I gotta add. Stop it. Only recently did I add Git support to it because for the longest time I would just do like a a complete backup of my entire site every time I published to like a tar file, like a tar.gz file. I would yeah, literally that, back up the would, entire that site. Would, uh, that would compress real small, I'm guessing. Yeah, because it's just text and there was none yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, well, like why over th- when I first made it, I'm like, okay, well, what if I screw something up? What if I do something and I'd run my publisher and it like scrambles my whole site? What do I do then? It's like, well, I've got Time Machine and so on and so forth, but why don't I just tar up the whole site before I ever update it? And if something goes wrong, I'll just untar the previous version. And I did that for years until I realized, what are you doing? Just use a Git repo, put the whole site in a Git repo. And every time you publish, you do another commit. And that way, if you screwed it up and you want to roll back, you just roll back to a previous, you just check out a previous commit. Remember our first email exchange when I first got a crush on you? And you remember I sent you, I sent you those Jonathan Colton MP3s. Compressed an MP3 file, yeah. I I zipped them and I sent them to you. And I think what you said to me that I will always love you for, which is something like, uh, I'm so happy that you sent these to me that I'm not even going to give you a hard time about compressing an MP3. It's true. Mm-hmm. Now look at us. We're like an old married couple. Mm-hmm. Still zipping MP3s after all these years. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs>